listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jessica Larson. Our scripture reading for today is Romans 1, verses 1 to 20. I will be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. For in the first place, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their faithlessness nullify their faithfulness of God? By no means. Although everyone is a liar, let God be proved true, as it is written, so that you may be justified in your words and prevail in your judging. But if our injustice serves to confirm the justice of God, what should we say? That God is unjust to inflict wrath on us, I speak in a human way? By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my falsehood, God's truthfulness abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not say, as some people slander us, by saying that we say, let us do evil so that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. What then? Are we any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged them that all, both Jews and Greeks, and are under power of sin as it is written. There is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who is understanding. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is no one who shows kindness. There is not even one. Their throats are opened graves. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of vipers is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery are in their paths. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before them. Now that we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For no human being will be justified in his sight by deeds prescribed by the law. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks for that reading, Jess. You know, a lot has changed as we've made this transition to doing church online. Uh, There have been some perks. We're doing small groups online, which is cool. Uh, Our virtual prayer meetings on Mondays have become a highlight of my week. And I've heard from a number of you who love this online worship format. You love being able to worship from home in your pajamas with a cup of coffee. Of course, nothing was really stopping you from wearing pajamas to church before all this, so the joke's really on you there. But in spite of all the good stuff that has come from this very strange season of online worship, we've also lost a lot. We don't get to sing together anymore, at least not really. We don't get to hear the voices of the folks over in the next pew as they belt out the hymns and the praise songs. We don't get to see each other and catch up in in quite the same way. 
We've had to cancel special events like the Arts Fest, and we've also had to put a hold on a number of like the classes and other ministries that are really tough to pull off virtually. But along those lines, we are going to try to bring back one of those ministries in a virtual format, Sermon Talkbacks. To folks who aren't familiar, Sermon Talkbacks are this class I lead twice a month on Sundays where uh, right after the service, we gather in the parlor to ask questions and to actually dialogue about the recent sermons. I've heard from a number of you who missed the Talkbacks, and so here's what we're going to do to try and bring those back. As we progress through this series on the book of Romans, and as questions come up, as they certainly will, I want you to email those questions directly to me. You can send it to the address on your screen. Or if you're on the church website, you should be able to scroll down, and there should be some sort of a a button or a form or a box where you can submit your questions about the sermons directly on the website. So whether you have a question about today's sermon or a future sermon or even something you'd like to ask from a previous sermon, send in your questions and once I get enough, I'm going to put together a Q&A style video addressing those questions and we'll post that somewhere on the church website. That's the Sermon Talkback update. Let's get into our passage for this week, which is a doozy. Uh, The passage I just read for us a minute ago is 20 verses long. And there's honestly so much there, it could probably fill like three or four sermons at least. Personally, though, I know I would love to actually get through the book of Romans eventually, so we're not going to spend a month here. Uh, Instead, we're going to zoom out a little bit, see that a lot of what Paul is talking about in this passage touches on things we've been discussing for the the past few weeks. And then we're going to zoom back in on one or two points of this passage that I think are especially important as we move forward in this letter. So first, bird's eye view. Paul begins chapter three of Romans addressing the Jewish Christians in his audience. Remember, the church in Rome at this time is made up of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and they are not getting along very well. So Paul's approach is to swoop in and humble both sides, bring them both down to earth to see that neither side is better than the other. He took aim at Gentile Christians in Romans chapter 1, and then he leveled his fellow Jewish Christians in chapter 2. So by the time we get to chapter 3, Paul's still addressing the Jewish Christians in Rome. He talks about how the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, but they blew it, essentially. And therefore, both Jews and Gentiles have proven unfaithful. And that leads us into this long beat poem of sorts, In verses 10 to 18, where Paul strings together all these quotes from the Old Testament, some of which he's taking totally out of context, by the way, which is interesting, but it is fun to kind of like go through and look at all the cross-references and actually see what some of these passages were actually talking about. We're not going to do that right now, but if you have a good study Bible, by all means, have at it. But the big picture point of all these Old Testament references is that no one on earth can live up to the righteousness of God. All are affected by sin, all have proven unfaithful, all are in need of grace. That's what we've been talking about for a few weeks now, really. That's the big picture takeaway here. If you've got that point, you've got the passage, really. But I want to take a closer look at two specific spots in this, in this passage, because there are two spots in this passage that operate sort of like hinge points, really. They, they connect all the ideas Paul's working with here and bring unity to the whole. 
And it's two questions Paul asks, or really the same question asked in slightly different ways in verses 1 and 9. In verse 1, Paul asks a rhetorical question. What advantage has the Jew? In other translations, it might be like, what's the advantage of being a Jew? Or is there any advantage to being Jewish? Is there any advantage at all to being a religious insider? And then in verse 9, Paul asks a similar question. What then? Are we any better off? Are Jews any better off? Is there any advantage at all to belonging to the right religion? Remember, Paul's been critiquing his own people, the Jews here, for a whole chapter. I mean, he starts out in chapter 1 critiquing Gentiles and their religion with all the idolatry and the weird sex stuff. Be sure to check out that sermon if you missed it a few weeks ago. Just, you know, don't bring the kids to that one. But then Paul pivots and critiques his own people, the Jews, and their religion, taking aim specifically at the law, one of the most sacred and important elements of the Jewish faith. This is a big deal. I mean, like imagine if some famous preacher, someone that you really respect and admire came to town. Think like someone on the level of like a Billy Graham or a Martin Luther King Jr. Imagine if somebody like that showed up at our church today and just turned everything upside down. Like exposed all the fault lines, all the flaws, called us out for all the ways that our religion has been perverted or failed. Imagine if they called you out and in a single sermon just blew up every element of Christianity that you hold dear. My guess is some of us would probably take offense to that. Uh, Some might leave the church over it and never come back. Uh, Some of us might rethink our faith, maybe even in some productive ways. But many of us would probably find our faith shattered. We'd be wondering, like, What's the point? I mean, if we've botched this so terribly, if we've screwed things up so bad, if the name of God is being blasphemed among the nations because of us, well, then what's the point? Why are we doing this? Why not just quit while we're behind? Paul anticipates this reaction in his audience when he asks the question, what advantage has the Jew? What advantage has the religious insider? Are we any better off than anyone else? Now, as we've just seen, Paul asks that question twice uh, in two slightly different ways, and he gives two different answers, which is helpful. But the second time he asks the question in verse 9, Paul brings his readers back down to earth, and he says, no, everyone's sinful, everyone's screwed it up, we're all in the same boat. But I really don't want to miss the answer he gives the first time he asks that question in verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. For in the first place, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Paul has already humbled his audience. He's made them question everything, and he's going to bring them back down to earth again in just a few verses. But not before he gives them this little sliver of hope. Is there any advantage to being a Jew? Well, yes, because the Jews were entrusted with the oracles 
of God. Now, to really understand the gravity of the statement and everything that lays behind it, we got to go all the way back to the Old Testament and the story of God's people that begins right in the first pages in, in the book of Genesis. When God created the world and commissioned human beings to be his partners in tending it. The Bible opens with this beautiful picture of the world as it was meant to be. God is the good creator who forms creation out of love. God blesses it, sustains it, calls it good. And then God creates human beings in God's own image and places them in the garden as God's representatives to tend it, to care for it. There's this partnership here between God and humanity where God creates and sustains while human beings cultivate and take care of God's good creation. That partnership extends into human community as human beings are commissioned to reflect God's love in their relationships with each other. So the Bible opens with this perfect picture of the world as it's supposed to be. But then things go haywire. The first human beings rebel. Uh, sin and death creep into the picture. And this perfect world God created is torn apart. That's the story of Genesis 3 to 11 in a nutshell. Beginning with Adam and Eve eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Continuing with Cain killing his brother Abel. Noah's ark in the flood. The tower of Babel. This rebellion that's sparked by the first human beings just ripples through creation, threatening to undo it all. But then we get a turn in the book of Genesis, a, a sudden course correction in the plot when God meets a man called Abram. Abraham, as we remember him today. And God offers to be Abraham's God to give him descendants, to be their God, and to shape his family into God's people. God promises to bless them and to work through Abraham's seed to bless all the families of the earth. So God's master plan to save the world is to reveal God's own self to this one man and his family and then to use that family to bless all the families of the earth, to bring the whole creation back to God. That's the story of the Old Testament, and arguably, that's the story of the entire Bible. So is there any advantage to being a Jew? Is there any advantage to being a religious insider, especially after everything Paul has said in these last many verses we've let, looked at these past few weeks? We know that we're all equally fallen, we're all equally sinful, but is there any advantage to being a Jew? Yes, because as a descendant of Abraham, the Jews have been entrusted with the oracles of God. They're part of the family that God has been working through for centuries to save the world. Unless we think this is a message that only applies for Jews, a message only for, for Jewish Christians. Paul's going to tease out in just a few chapters that through Christ, Gentiles like us have now been invited into the family of Abraham. We've been grafted in. And so now this commission that was originally given to Abraham and his descendants, it now belongs to all of us who have put our faith in Jesus. 
We have all been entrusted with the oracles of God for the good of the world. Now, that's a really important word right there that Paul uses, entrusted. What does it mean to entrust someone with something? Like when you take your money to a bank and you entrust the bank with your life savings, what does that mean to entrust? Like it doesn't mean that your bank just becomes, that your money just becomes the bank's money, right? That it's like theirs to use as they please. You're not just giving it to the bank because you think that they're the best bank, better than all the other banks, and and so you just want to give them a gift. No. To entrust someone with something means that you expect them to do something with it. You expect them to use it, to to manage it, to cultivate it, not for their own good, but for the sake of something bigger. And now we're right back in Genesis 1, with God inviting the first human beings to be God's partner and entrusting them to manage and care for creation. The problem with the Jewish Christians Paul is writing to in Rome is that they've lost their sense of being entrusted with the faith. For them, religion has become something that they possess, something they own, something that elevates them over their peers. But Paul is reminding them that their faith comes with a commission. They are expected to do something with it. And so as Gentiles, as as Christians who have been invited into the family of Abraham, how do we think about our faith? our religion? What's the point of being part of the church? What's the advantage of being a Christian? Why do we do what we do every single week? Going to church, worshiping together, learning together. What's all this really about? I think a lot of us would answer that question in different ways. You know, for some, church is about feeling good, being uplifted. We we go to church to see our friends, to catch up with each other, to, to sing along to music that we enjoy, right? To, to hear a teaching that is hopefully thought-provoking, not too boring, and that challenges us to see the world in a new way. That's all good stuff, by the way. I don't want to poo-poo any of that. But do you see how, if that's what it's all about, like if, if that's the extent of what our faith our religion means to us. Do you see how easily that turns faith into something that we possess? Something that's ours? Something that belongs to us? For some people, faith is about self-improvement. You know, it's about, it's about being a better person. We go to church so that we can learn to be more ethical, develop strong moral character, maybe even grow in holiness, which would be nice. That's, that's all good stuff too. Um, But if you've met many Christians, you've probably figured out by now that we are not much better at that stuff than anybody else. Heck, we're we're not even much more holy than your average person. So if that's what you're after, if that's what this is about for you, then you're probably going to lose faith in all this at some point once the curtain is pulled back and you see just how screwed up we all still are. And of course, there's, there's other folks where the point of faith, the point of being a Christian, is to be in, right? To be, to be saved, to be right, to know that we're on the right team, we're on the right side, we've got all the right beliefs, all of our doctrines figured out, to know that when we die, we're going to the good place, and everyone else who doesn't believe like us is going to the bad place. And like, I believe in judgment, 
I believe God is coming to judge the world and set things right. And I believe that as followers of Jesus, we have hope in the resurrection of the dead and the promise that we will one day get to enjoy eternity with God forever. And I'm looking forward to that. I'm, I'm pumped. Heaven's going to be sick. But if that's what it's all about, if it's just about going to heaven, getting to the end goal, do you see how quickly that can also turn faith into something we possess, something that belongs to us? But what if faith is something we're entrusted with? What if our religion, what if our salvation isn't primarily for our benefit, but is more of a calling, a commissioning to partner with God in the work of redeeming the world? What if that's the advantage of being a Christian? What if that's the thing that makes us different? Well, in that case, I think we'd probably do church differently for one. Uh, It would be less about our preferences, what we like, what we enjoy, what we feel entitled to maybe. And it would be more about how to best equip ourselves as a church to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. It'd be a lot less inward focused, what happens in the sanctuary and all that, and a lot more outward oriented. Our budget would probably shift pretty radically uh, with this kind of a change. Our ministries, the way we worship, the things we do when we're together, how we spend our time, that would all probably look pretty different too. Because the goal wouldn't be to have a really great hour-long worship experience once a week. It would be to equip ourselves to follow Jesus into the world. To take this faith that we've been entrusted with and actually do something with it. Not for ourselves, but for others. And it's not to try to right every wrong or fix every injustice, end all suffering. That's beyond our capacity to do. You want to burn yourself out? That's a great way to do it. But to take our little sliver, our little piece of creation, Brockport, and to partner with God in cultivating it reflecting God's love and God's grace in our relationships, working toward reconciliation whenever we encounter brokenness, seeing our careers, our vocations, what we do in a whole new light. You know, whether you're a business owner, a grandparent, a student, someone who provides a service or manages people, a a police officer, some other public servant, to actually see our work as an opportunity to partner with God in cultivating grace and new life in our little sliver of the world. Now, of course, there is a dark side to this commissioning as well, right? There's, there's a sort of ominous sh- shadow. As, as much as this might fill us with, with hope and excitement, there's some fear here as well. We've been commissioned to partner with God in the work of redeeming the world But what if we mess it up? What if we drop the ball? What if we prove to be just as bad at this as the Israelites were in the Old Testament? And uh, spoiler alert, but we're going to mess it up. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to find that we are all just as sinful, just as fallen, just as idolatrous as everybody else. But here's the good news. When we prove to be unfaithful, God remains 
faithful. That's why Paul writes in the very next verse, what if some were unfaithful? Will their faithfulness, or sorry, faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Although everyone is a liar, let God be proved true. We're gonna mess this up. We're gonna fail. Paul realized this. He wasn't being naive. But in light of our unfaithfulness, God's faithfulness shines through. God's not going to revoke our commissioning when we fall into sin. God's not going to say, man, am I sorry I ever entrusted you with the gospel? No. When we are weak, God is strong. When we fail, God succeeds. And when we stumble, God is faithful to pick us up and get us back on track. Now, that doesn't mean we should embrace sin. It doesn't mean we should be like deliberately unfaithful so that God's faithfulness shines even brighter. That's what Paul is cautioning against in in verse 5 and following. But honestly, I don't know anyone who thinks like that. and, And if you do, we should probably have a chat at some point. But that's why Paul brings his audience back down to earth the second time he asks this question in verse 9. It reminds us that all have sinned. All have gone astray. And that as Christians, we are no better off and we're also no worse off than anybody else. In fact, the only thing that differentiates us from the rest of the world is that we've been entrusted through Christ with a particular mission. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for inviting us to partner with you in saving the world. Thank you for not giving up on the world or turning, back, turning your back on the world, but for saving it and for inviting us to join you in that work. God, help us to remember that we are no better than anyone else. We're not above anyone, anyone else. We're not greater than anyone else. We're not more in, we're not more favored or more loved than anyone else. But we are your people. We've been adopted into your family. And we have been entrusted with the gospel. Help us to remember that, Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.